And welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. Today, Matt welcomes Storyville, a rapper, producer, and sound engineer hailing from Boston, Massachusetts. As a rapper, Storyville's latest release is the collaborative album Soul Veggies, released in February 2015 with previous guest Megaran, who made an appearance in episode 22. With Matt, Storyville discusses how the album came to be, and how long it took to make happen. They also chat about the state of the music industry, the evolution of rap music, and Storyville's work as a producer and engineer. Finally, with some added words on the accomplished engineer's helpful audio production blog, The Pro Audio Files, here's presenting Matt Storm and Storyville. Welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I have with me legendary producer and rapper Storyville. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Earlier this year, we got to chat with your Soul Veggies buddy, Mr. Mega Ran, and uh, I thought before we close out the year, or right at the beginning of the new year, actually, I'd chat with the other half of one of my favorite rap albums uh, for 2015. So, how are you doing? And I'm, uh, I mean, you know, I'm rolling down uh, I-95 here, which, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that's a great experience, but oh, overall, life is great. <laughs> As a fellow East Coaster in New York who has friends in Philadelphia, I know 95 all too well, and it always sucks. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start ch with chatting a little bit about Soul Veggies, which, as I said, I really adore. Um, it, it's one of my favorite rap records, mostly because it takes hip-hop and delivers it in a fun, awesome, and mostly positive kind of you know, just this overwhelming positivity, you know, you know, that you have some serious songs on there, but more or less, this is kind of, let's rap and let's have fun with it. And uh, I think that's what really dr drove me to be attracted to the record. Um, I'm curious how Soul Veggies came to be. I think Megaran talked about it a little bit, but I'm curious, like, how did, did the album as a collaboration, because I know you guys have been working together for a while, is it just something you've always wanted to do an album together, or is it something that kind of just built out of the natural relationship? Um, Rand will give you a different answer than <laughs> I will give you, but here's the way it came about. So in 2006 to 2007, I worked on a solo album called Escape Plan, mm -hmm. and I put it out in 2008. And never had a chance to do my own solo stuff since then because the production side of my career really started taking off after that. So mm -hmm. I really wanted to do another project, but I had been out of the game as far as being a musician was involved and ran, had been cultivating a really great audience. I've been talking about wanting to, to branch out, try some new stuff. We've already had a history of successful collaborations in the past. So I asked him if he would be interested in doing a collaboration album, and I would handle the production and half of the raps, and he would do the other half of the raps. And we would go from And he said yes, but it was one of those things where it was filled in over the course of a long period of time. 
because we both had our own things going on. So it was something that you guys had been working on over a period of time. Did you guys kind of always work together to write the songs? Did you kind of each write certain songs, or was it kind of just like a mix? Uh, I hope that my GPS isn't getting into your thing, but uh, it's, it's I, I a did mix. not hear it, now. <laughs> oh, good. So it's a, it was a mix, and uh, you can kind of tell which songs were sort of born from, from my brain versus what were born from Rand's. Anything that's more soulful and feels like a little bit more locked down is going to be something that Rand came up with. And anything that's a little bit slightly insane is usually <laughs> the stuff that I came up with. But you could probably guess which tracks were, were my brain babies. Well, uh, my first guess would probably be rapping about rapping. That would be one of them, yeah. <laughs> what I love about that song is how silly how silly it is. You know, a lot of I listen to a lot of nerdcore where it, it tends to not take itself hyper seriously unless they're trying to deliver a certain kind of message. But even still in nerdcore, like the format for doing a nerdy song about Mega Man per, per se or about Game of Thrones or whatever it is tends to still fit very seriously in a specific format to convey that message. But something like rapping about rapping is just a ridiculous song about rapping. And, and and I think that's kind of why I love it so much, because it's just kind of like, fuck it, let's just do a song about rapping. Yeah, I mean, the concept behind it was, I have this thing where I'm very annoyed with underground rappers, quote-unquote, who seem to be hooked on hearkening back to, like, 1994, and it's like, man, 1994 was like a million years ago. That was a great time and all, but like, come on, let's let's start moving forward and being forward thinking. And this is one of the reasons I like nerdcore is because at least it's something different that, you know, the boundaries aren't in place. And so people can kind of do whatever they want to do and there's a lot of feeling it out. But at the same time, like, I feel like the commercial rap kind of does the same thing in its own way where it's sort of recycling the same concepts all the time. And so it's kind of making fun of the people who rap about how good they are at rapping. Like, that's <laughs> their subject material, which I've always found laughable. Um, another song that I didn't actually know existed before I bought the record. So I bought the record on Bandcamp, but I had originally listened to it on Spotify because my other podcast that I do is an album review show that we do weekly. And so some of the, I can't buy every album we review, so I tend to, but I pay for Spotify. Um, but when I downloaded it, I got that beautiful bonus track, Turn Up Them Beats, which was a great joke in the intro. I'm guessing that one's from your brain, too, or was that more of a collaborative one? That one um, that one was actually from a friend of mine. When, when Ran and I were in Colorado, we mm -hmm. were touring, a friend of mine stopped into the show, and he said, you know, you're calling yourself soul veggies. You should do a song about vegetables. And I was like, ha, 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 yeah, that's funny. And then Ram was like, I think we should do a song about eating vegetables. And I was like, okay, that's a little boxed in. Uh, so maybe, like, talking about how difficult it is to eat healthy while on tour, because that's a little bit more grounded and a little less <laughs> like, here's a song for the sake of doing a song. And, sure. Uh, so that's where that one came from. Ram came – I came up with the – part of the chorus that I did, and then Ran came up with his part of the chorus, which is a very, normally one of us will write the chorus. 
Like, right. we'll pen it, and even if the other person's doing it, like, Rand will be like, hey, I came up with this hook, can you do it? Like, OP from, from R&DM, he wrote that hook, I just wrapped it. Um, but this one actually was genuinely written by both of us, which is pretty rare. That's awesome. Um, so, Soul Veggies has been out since the beginning of the year. Um, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Also, I know you were featured on Mega Rand's com missions as well as his new uh, uh, R&DM, I think I spelled that right, um, album. Um, my question about com mission, which I enjoy a lot, is the song you do on that is to the boss selection theme. Um, is that a beat that you produced for that song as well as wrapped over? Uh, that's the that's the uh, start. Yeah, the start for Mega Man. Mm-hmm. Okay, that record is actually very very old. That record was done for um, Mega Ran Nine, his second Mega Ran album, which I right. think was in two thousand nine or two thousand ten, something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, and then I changed when we I was in Arizona. And we were working on another project, a song called Another Day, which was originally a commission project from a producer in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and said that he, he liked that track and he wanted to bring it back to life. And so I dug up the beat and I repenned the lyrics to be a little bit more contemporary. And just I wrote it and then did the take there. So you can actually hear there's a small spot in that song where I get off beat and uh, – it's just one little line where, and it drives me nuts. But it was it was something that was very quick. Um, yeah, I, I find with a lot of modern nerdcore rappers, especially the ones who thrive on internet releases, it's kind of even hard to sometimes keep up with what's new, what's not, what's re-released, what's been released. Because uh, who are you telling? It's hard just <laughs> to keep up with Rand's catalog alone. Yeah, I mean. I listen to just about every nerdcore app where you can find under the sun because everyone works with everybody else just about, at least at some point. So it's easy to kind of follow the rabbit hole. But I find with Megaran and Adam Warrock's catalog specifically, I get lost if I'm not following it for more than a month because between online releases and Bandcamp releases and bonus stuff, it's like, you know, my head spins from all the music that's coming out, which is not a bad problem to have, I feel. Um, the, the the next thing I wanted to talk about is so obviously you also do production as well as rapping. Um, which one did you do first? Were you a rapper first? Did you do production first? Did you kind of just start doing both at the same time? It depends on where you draw the line. I started rapping when I was like eleven. <laughs> I was like, it's something that I was always interested in, and I started doing production when I was like fourteen. Uh, on like a Roland Groove Box 303, like that was my first machine, and so both of those started at a very early age, and I never really decided which. When I when it came time to like go down a career path, I decided that production was where I felt more comfortable and felt like I could really do what I do, uh, and that. But I didn't want to give up rapping at the same time because it's too enjoyable. It's too much fun. I love touring. I love meeting fans and hanging out with people. Awesome. And so um, do you have a solo project, so, a solo uh, rap album in the works? Do I have one in the works? Currently, yeah. Well, a follow-up after Soul Veggies that you do with Mega Rand. Do you have any uh, current releases that you're working on for, for yourself? I have 
ideas that occasionally I will get down and I will put down, but I very rarely can find the time to focus on them. I do have stuff that is quote-unquote in the works, but I hesitate to say that because <laughs> I, somebody listening to your show might be expecting me to put something out, and I don't anticipate doing that. And I mean, not just for the fact that it's hard for me to put together the music, but also because I don't have a self-constructed lane to distribute it. So I would have to, I'd have to talk to Ran and and strategize with him for a long time about gotcha. how, you know, exactly about how to put the the stuff out effectively. Um, but I would like what I'd like to do is kind of like a like a I don't know if you remember those old like Jermaine Dupree albums or Puff Daddy albums where it was like Jermaine Dupree would be on every song, but there'd be somebody else on every other song. So it was like a producer album. And I know that those are usually frowned upon, but there's just so many great people from the nerdcore scene that I'm cool with, that I would love to do records with. And so I'm thinking like, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll do a project where it's maybe like seven songs and every song has, it's shared with somebody else. That would be awesome. It's kind of like a Storyville presents. And then you have all these other rappers as well on the album. Yeah. I think that would be a really cool project, actually. Um, so I know earlier this year you went on tour with Megaran to support, of course, Soul Veggies, which had come out. Um, I was curious if you had, like, a favorite stop on tour this year or in tours past. Oh, like a like a favorite venue or city? Yeah. Um, gosh, that's a tough question to answer. It, <laughs> venues and cities offer different things. So, like, there's a place in Ohio – in Yellow Springs, Ohio, it's this comic shop, and every time we go on a tour where we cross the Midwest from the north, they mm-hmm. always have us in, and it doesn't matter how big the crowd is. It's just a small shop. It's usually no more than, like, 20 people tops, and they just they treat us like royalty when we come through, and everyone is super nice. It's a, it's a venue that's, like, not – it's not trying to be anything that it isn't, and so we can do – we can experiment with material we normally wouldn't never perform in front of, you know, a 4,000 person audience. And so I just, I really like that spot for that reason. But at the same time, it's not like, you know, doing a MAGFest show where there's just thousands of people, which is, you know, it's its own amazing experience in itself. And I, it would be probably, easier to name places I don't like than to name the places I do. I love going on tour. I've had so many amazing experiences. I I wouldn't be able to lock one down. Um, Okay. Well, then do you have a particular horror story? You could not name the venue, but in a certain city that was just not great to be at while you were on tour. You know, the two things that happen the most that leave a a negative impression are – when the promoter does not treat us well, and and promoters do some pretty trashy stuff, uh, I'm not going to name names, but there was a promoter who tried to pull the old. So we said a hundred bucks, right? And we're like, no, we said four hundred, <laughs> like that kind of a thing. And it's it, that that happens, or you know, oh, you know, you need to talk to another act about getting paid. No, you're the promoter. I don't want to take money from the from the hand of another artist. We don't do that. Or, right. you know, trying to put us in charge of that, those kinds of things. Like So that always leaves a sour taste. And then the other thing that's tough is the space in between. Certain areas of the country are very hard to drive through. Um, 
we've had a lot of problems going through parts of the Midwest and South where the driving laws are a little bit more strict. And I'm not going to say that the fact that Rand's a big black dude driving the car may have something to do or may not have something. We don't know. But yeah, I, I, uh, I can imagine it can be trying sometimes driving from place to place. So my next question is, and so you said you've been rapping and, and producing for about as long as you can remember. Do you have any specific influences for either rap production or both that specifically affect how you write and how you, how you work? Do I, do I have what that affects how I work? Uh, specific inspiration, specific artists who, oh. who affected and, and inspire your work. Oh, are other artists who have inspired my work. Um, right. When I was younger, I listened to a lot of Redman, uh, Brother Ali, Busta Rhymes. Uh, those guys come to mind pretty readily. Rakim. Um, those are those are at least the hip hop artists. And Ran actually, I listen I listen to all of Ran stuff too, and I find his stuff to be pretty inspiring. So those are the guys. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask is obviously being involved in the nerdcore community and tend to be a lot of music about very nerdy things. Do you have any particularly specific nerdy things that you're super stoked about or always enjoy spending a pastime with, whether it's video games or movies or anything like that? I really like board games and I have a weird, oddly niche penchant for just like dystopia flavored sci-fi. So like post-apocalyptic type stuff, uh, Dune, like <laughs> basically stuff that other self-respecting nerds generally don't like because I'm not a big Star Wars guy and that you would think that would be the first go-to under that category. Uh, sure. I, I When I was growing up, I was very much into video games. Uh, after about maybe the seventh button showed up on a controller, that's when I started tapping out because <laughs> that's... It was just too much to think about, and I was older at that point anyway and caught up in stuff. But uh, comic books, too, would be the other thing. I think I have literally every Marvel trading comic card that came out between the year, like, 1992 and 1996. Wow, that's impressive. That's a lot of cards. Yeah, it's a lot. It's this huge binder. And then there's like another like little folder on top of it. It's it, it's at my mother's house. I can picture it. And then there's a like a little glass case thing with a bunch of those hologram cards that you oh, can sure. turn one way. And it, yeah, so I have like a whole case full of those too. So you mentioned being a Dune fan. Have you ever seen the terrible David Lynch Dune movie? You know, I haven't seen the uh, the write-ups for any of that stuff. I heard about it. And I'm excited. I like David Lynch, actually, even though I still can't figure out what the hell Mulholland Drive was about. But <laughs> I would I would love to watch that. I I would be very excited for it. I think the one that I'm most excited for, though, is Deadpool. I'm still not convinced that it's actually coming out. But, man, I've got such such a, such a jazzed up – I don't know how to say it. I'm just getting too excited even thinking about it. I can't get the words out. Well, yeah. I mean, the the first the first test screen they showed of just the computer animated computer animated version of him just kicking ass, like that was unbelievable. And the fact that that spawned enough fervor for the movie to actually get made because it was on hold 
is exciting. It's also exciting to see Ryan Reynolds get another stab at playing a good comic book character in a good movie instead of Green right. Lantern or Deadpool the first time. I forced um, myself to watch that Wolverine Origins movie, and I really regret Everyone told me I was going to regret it, too. Oh, it's awful. It's, it's, that was bad. God. I'm a diehard Wolverine fan. Wolverine and Venom are my two favorite DC characters, and what the movies have done to both. I mean, Wolverine, you know, Hugh Jackman's not a bad Wolverine. He's been good in some of the X-Men movies, and I like The Wolverine, which came out a few years ago. But, like, Wolverine Origins was so awful. And then, of course, Spider-Man 3, the Raimi years, was terrible. So, like, two of my favorite yeah. characters have gotten these awful movies. But, but uh the trailer for, for Deadpool looks incredible. It looks like it's going to be funny, offbeat, ridiculous, and it has a really good cast. So I'm actually very excited to see it. Marvel is still going through. People forget this, that Marvel movies used to be horrible. Like, yeah. universally were the worst movies coming out. The, the first Fantastic Four was garbage. The <laughs> uh, And honestly, the original Spider-Mans that were coming out weren't that good in my mind either. Right. So it's... You know, was, uh, Daredevil was terrible. It was one of the worst movies of all time. And so there's still that legacy of, like, the old guard of Marvel writing that's being shaken off. But then you see these things like the Netflix series, oh, yeah. Marvel stuff, or, like, you know, the the newer Captain Americas and things like that. It's like the, the actual writing is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, we, me and my wife binge-watched all of Daredevil in days. Like, we loved the hell out of it. And we just started watching Jessica Jones, which is incredible as well. I'm stoked for all of those series they have planned. Like, they have, like, four other – three other series planned for other heroes to come out, which is actually super exciting. I believe that Jessica Jones is actually better than Daredevil, and I really liked Daredevil. So We're I'm not only- saying that lightly. <laughs> We're only two episodes in. We haven't even seen Kilgrave's face yet, though. You know, I don't know that I want to because I hear it's going to change my complete opinion of David Tennant for the rest of my life. So I'm told because uh, he plays a very creepy villain very well, apparently. He does. Uh, and also, he plays a really shitty villain very well because from the comic books, Purple Man is a really lousy bad guy. And they apparently found some way to kind of jazz him up in the in the TV series. But, I mean, the first two episodes blew us away, so we're excited to watch the rest. Um, I love it's, the guy they cast to play Luke Cage as well. Yeah. I, it's They humanized everyone, and that was that's an element that's sometimes been lacking in the comic books. Yeah. And so I think that's what is really making the difference here is that these the it's not about the strength of their power or – you know, the the plot motivation that's driven by powers, which is what I feel like the burden on Marvel Comics has been for a long time. It's about the human side of the characters, and that's much more interesting. Do you have a favorite Marvel character from, from the Marvel Universe, since you seem to be pretty knowledgeable about the comics as a whole? Um, the characters have evolved and changed and been written and rewritten by so many different people. It, dep- it really depends on which canon you're looking at. Because there, some characters are, like, impressively bland and then become very deep and interesting later on. And some characters, it goes the other way. I, the first time I ever felt like Marvel really stepped up in terms of creating a dynamic that I found captivating was the Maximum Carnage series in Spider-Man. 
such a great series of comic books and spawned one of the only, at least decent, Genesis-era Spider-Man video games. That, too. Oh, my God. That video game was so hard. So hard. And But I only <laughs> cared about it because after, like, three levels, you could play as Venom. And I didn't care about playing as Spider-Man. I just wanted to beat the crap out of people as Venom. Yeah, nobody – everybody played – we didn't play that game to play Spider-Man. The other one um, – <laughs> Arcade's Revenge. That is the hardest freaking game. Like, next to Ninja Gaiden. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever played that. All you have to do is mention the Storm underwater level, and everybody shudders. Because nobody... No, the Juggernaut level is the tough one. Oh, that one was tough, too. Yeah, the Wolverine level with Juggernaut. I mean, they were all hard. Like, none of them were particularly easy. Some much harder than others. I mean, that's what I miss kind of about video games now. Like, I like... I, I still play a lot of modern games, and I like the in-depth stories and it's like a movie and like the challenge is still there but not as much but like the Nintendo and Super Nintendo era games were freaking hard most of them I never beat unless I had Game Genie and so that's kind of hard <laughs> these days yeah I think um, there's a beauty to simplicity and with video games I feel like that easily goes to the wayside when you start looking at things like CGI cutscenes and uh, you know, the, the interfacing of your, especially with the first person shooter type games, because the interfacing is getting so realistic and that's amazing. It's like you feel like you're actually walking through, you know, the moon or wherever the heck you happen to be shooting whoever you happen to be shooting. And that's cool, but we lose the, the thought that goes behind games like Myst or sure. Phantasmagoria, or uh, even games like what we were talking about, Arcade's Revenge or Ninja Gaiden, where the simplicity of it doesn't take away from the enjoyment or the challenge. No, yeah. I mean, that said, there were many a time when Ninja Gaiden made me want to throw my entire Nintendo across the room. But Yeah, throwing the controller at the screen. That was, uh, that was the precursor to baseball. <laughs> No, for sure. I mean, I broke many a controller in the early Nintendo era, whereas now, like, controllers and system cost so much money, it's like, no, I'm not going to throw this. Are you crazy? Right. But back then, it was like, you know, it was 10, 10 15 bucks for a controller, like, you know, and you didn't think about that stuff because likely your parents bought it for you, so you just raged on the on the console itself. The other thing that I always liked about the the simpler games, and I don't mean to wax poetic about stuff that's old, because there's definitely a lot of like a lot of crap. But the eight bit system didn't really integrate well with chordal structure music, yeah. and so in order to remedy that, people had to either come up with very complex and well thought out arpeggiation schemes. Or they just really had to rely on extremely captivating themes. And that's why a lot of the nerdcore stuff is sampling older music rather than newer music. It's not because the newer music doesn't have amazing orchestration. It's because the theme, the part that's catchy and hooks you, is drowned in orchestration. Yeah, totally. I mean, I had a long conversation with uh, with several nerd rappers about how some of my favorite songs that were put out by folks like Michael Kill and Megaran and uh, Dr. Awkward is that they take like those eight bit beats and then do something incredible with them that you just don't find as much with modern gaming music. And I find that they just stand out so much more like for, for uh, the state select song that you did and then and we did 
like slowing down that beat and taking something that's fairly simple from Mega Man and slowing it down a little just adds a, dr- a drama to it that was there the whole time that you can't really find in a lot of the overly orchestrated modern stuff. Well, the other thing is is that it gives your imagination more room to play with things because you can take a simple theme and say, okay, this is too simple, and then you can reinvent it because we're not limited to sampling on the actual recording plane. We can sample, it's called interpolation, we can sample an idea and reimagine it and reinvent it. And if you want to know the first video game-inspired song that I produced for RAN, it's actually Push. Because that's a reinvention of a video game theme. That I mean, it didn't go exactly like that, but it was uh, it was one of the fighters' themes from a, an old like not Mortal Kombat, but similar kind of game that came out earlier than that. And I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. But. but yeah, no, that I mean, I love that song, and I happen to think that you know doing that with that kind of music is a skill that's unlike anything else. I mean, it fascinates me about modern nerdcore rap producers in general, but especially nerdcore producers that, you know, just the the things you can create by taking either existing stuff or just being influenced by stuff that's come before that's more retro. It just kind of has this wealth of stuff that you can dig from it. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to the rapping about rapping thing, a lot of the soul veggies concepts was, you know, okay, it's great to go back to the times that we all love because there were things about those times that maybe were better than they are now, but we don't have to be limited by all of the constrictions that we had then either. We can take the things that we like from the past and build upon them and put them in 2015. And that's why that sound, like Soul Veggies has a very deliberate sound in that way. Well, yeah, I mean, also, some of some of my favorite rap songs are from that album, mostly also because of how, like, Waste waste My Time is one of those songs that every time I hear it, I feel energized, like, you know, it's it, because it's just kind of got this, this rhythm, this movement. It, it, it reminds me of a lot of uh, 90s and 2000s music that just kind of had that upbeat, that, like, charge, move forward kind of sound, and it just, it's, it's, it, it, it's nice to get that in hip hop, which I find a lot more nerdcore than I do in even modern or pop rap, you know, rap that's kind of mainstream. I think that's why I gravitate towards nerdcore more because I find more of those inspirational sounds and feelings instead of this kind of just dark kind of being, you know, street and be, I don't even know what that means anymore, but this like being this, this, this kind of thing that has to be super serious. I feel like nobody, nobody knows what that means. (laughs) Rand is from one of the roughest places in North Philadelphia. He is as street as they come. But make no mistake, that doesn't mean being a gangbanger, and that doesn't mean being a dope dealer or anything like that. That just means where you're from, and that's all that it means. Yeah. And it's just fascinating to me, and I think the future kind of a rap music is if you take what hip-hop can do but apply it to other things other than just being super serious and super self-aware, or taking self-awareness to a hyper level, like in rapping about rapping, you know, I think that's really where it's going. Like, there's a band that I that I heard for the first time this year called Black Violin, and they fuse hip hop with kind of classical music and violins, cellos, and all this kind of classical music. And I think that's really interesting. And I feel like hip hop is more adaptable than most other genres because of you can kind of structure the lyrics kind of any way you want once you have a beat. And so it gives you the freedom around the beat to do whatever you want. 
Well, the other thing is you happen to be from the time where hip-hop really started taking off, as I am, then the idea of sampling is... It's a little broader than just ripping off somebody else's music. I mean, that is sort of essentially what it is, but it's, <laughs> it's learning to appreciate other forms of music and to take it and manipulate it to make it your own. And that is one of the most tried and true exercises in music competition going back to, you know, pre-Bach. Sure. Figuring out ways to take, you know, formats and manipulate them to push them forward or change them in a way where it, it, you don't predict it, and to do it without it seeming forced, like for the sake of doing it. So, like when you're doing like a classical music and hip hop fusion, that's either going to be something that's really interesting and innovative, or it's going to be something that sounds extremely forced and awkward, and sure. it could go either way. Um, well, yeah, and I, I like also depending on how you make it your own, like it can add a character to the song that it might not have had before. Um, like I, I, I like to play Medici Lions for a lot of my friends because I feel like it's a song that's just kind of dripping with swagger. And it's because of what the song's kind of about. And like, you know, you have the interlude that's from the wire kind of adding even more swagger to the song. It just, it, it's really, it's interesting the kind of character you can get just from a beat and just from the the sound of the song before you even get to the lyrics. Right. Um, the, the next thing I wanted to ask is, so clearly, mate, we, as we discussed earlier, you you love and work hard on rapping and production, and that's, production is your main gig. Before you became a music producer, was there anything else you did career-wise, or was production kind of always the thing you wanted to do so you moved straight for that? Uh, when I went to school, I actually went into school for writing. Mm -hmm. Then I I realized that I was also interested in um, math and, and sciences. And so I started focusing on math for about a year. And then I realized what I really wanted to do was just keep doing what I had always been doing, which is working on music. And so I finally, I had no formal training but I was able to get myself into the music composition side of the school anyway, uh, just from being able to write. And so I did that for a couple of years as well. And I was, so I was composing classical music for about two years in school. Uh, and then I realized, wait a minute, I don't need school for any of this. Uh, <laughs> maybe I should just start doing what I've been doing the whole time. And um, do you have any desire to, to reach out and possibly work on something besides hip-hop and rap? Like, um, do you play any instruments? Do you have any formal training with, with instruments? I've been teaching myself bass, and I played piano for about three years. As uh, That was sort of mandatory to be in the music school. Sure. And, uh, but I work on a lot of music that isn't rap. Actually, I have an entire, like, dual career that is completely unrelated really to rap and I don't let the two intersect too often but my career is as a mixing engineer primarily that's where I make the vast majority of my income and the I don't cross pollinate the two very often because there's something called rapper stigma which is <laughs> as soon as you tell somebody you're a rapper they lose all respect for you oh and no I wish I could say that I'm making this up but it's really it's very true and the funny thing is, is in the world of mixing, which is the world of music, you can be a bass player and people will let you mix anything. You can be a guitar player or a drummer 
people will let you mix anything. As soon as you say you're a rapper, people don't even want you mixing their rap records. Oh, no. So, right. And and then anybody else will automatically assume you can't do anything else. It's like, well, wait a minute. I've got a Grammy nomination in jazz, and I've got a Spellman Award for rock. So my biggest accolades are not in hip-hop, and I have to constantly reaffirm this with people, especially when they're like, oh, you also have a career as a rapper. That's questionable. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's 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 terrible. That's so judgmental. I hate that. That's awful. It's, it's exceptionally judgmental. That's a bummer to me, I, I especially in a world where we seem to be more accepting of a lot of things, though still not accepting enough of most things. But, like, I don't know. I feel like growing up as a kid, I mean, there was kind of no nerdcore when I was in high school or in junior high school. Um, the closest thing was Buster Rhymes sampling Knight Rider as far as <laughs> nerd, nerd, nerd music went for me. But, like, I grew up... That was awesome. the song I'm talking about. Yeah. The thing is, growing up... Fire It Up remix. Fire It Up remix, which featured... One version of the remix featured Jonathan Davis of Korn, and Buster Rhymes and Korn were two of my favorite artists growing up, so it's like world colliding. It was, like, I didn't know how it happened. I was like, they know each other? What's this about? Yeah, well, Buster was very forward with including the rock guys. He did a collaboration with Ozzy Osbourne. And, I uh, that. yeah, I mean, it's, there's been some really, there's been a lot of terrible rock rap collaborations, but there's been a lot of really good ones too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we all wish we could forget Limp Biscuit, but Fred Durst. <laughs> and, and I say that as someone who owns their first three records, unironically, like I bought them. I liked them. You know, I was a stupid white kid who liked all kinds of rap. And so I thought it was all equal. But I learned the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing I think that drew me to Nerdcore the most is growing up a nerdy white kid listening to, you know, Biggie and 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 Busta and and Ludacris and you know like anything I can get my hands on and loving it. But like lyrical content, it was like some of this I can relate to. Some of it I have no idea what the hell they're rapping about. Like, where's where's the rap music about the stuff I'm growing up with? And, you know, now I have it. And I think it's kind of cool that slowly rap is kind of shedding that stigma of it can only about be about these three things. You can kind of do it about whatever you want. Because there are a ton of mainstream bands that are using hip-hop more and doing a lot of rap about sensitive stuff and about, you know, growing up a certain way or or, or you know, being an only child or whatever it is. And it's, it's, it's interesting, the kind of dynamic shift that's been changing. And I'm sure there was stuff like that out when I was a kid too. I just didn't, it wasn't as visible as it is in the internet age. I mean, it was, it, it wasn't, I mean, that stuff was out there and especially with the sampling, like Bone Thugs and Harmony had a couple of records on East 1999 Eternal that sampled uh, some video games. And so that stuff has been there in various forms, but it, that movement, like a lot of that, believe it or not, was actually um, the influence of a guy named KRS-One, who I'm sure you've heard of, of yes. uh, who was who personally influenced me. Incidentally, I met him backstage at a uh, at a show at Temple when I was like 19, and we had a really good conversation about production and rap and you know shaping careers. But aside from that, he sort of actively campaigned about changing the 
the mindset of hip hop. I mean, people sort of look at him as a guy that constantly keeps trying to pull things back to the eighties, but he really isn't. He's just, he's created this foundation of what he believes hip hop is that he sticks to very tightly. But a big part of that is really trying to push things forward. And so he, he was very encouraging to a lot of people that you would be surprised about, um, you know, Lupe Fiasco with his Kick Push album. Uh, yeah. I remember KRS-One had been talking about that the year before it came out, about saying how, like, skateboarding was a big part of hip-hop and to, to remember to include that. And, you know, trying to take a wider look. And it was a reaction to exactly what you were saying about the propagation that rap and street life is about selling drugs and being in gangs. and while that's part of it, that certainly exists. It's not even the majority of it, not even close. Right. No, yeah, and I, I think also, I mean, being in the internet age, having this access to stuff, I mean, is unlike anything that 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 existed before. I mean, even five years ago, the way we consume music and the way we can get to it was unlike it is now. I mean, I've been very lucky, under my own sheer force of will, to create my own music website and two podcasts and been able to interview a ton of really great rappers who have influenced me and my, my, the way I look at music and the music I like. And it's, you know, I don't know that this kind of community would have blossomed the same way even five years ago, because it's just, there's a connectivity that didn't exist, you know? No, it's, it's a weird double, <clears throat> double-edged sword sure. with the whole, you know, the internet really, the pirating thing bottomed out the record label machine and has caused a ton of harm. But the sharing nature of the internet has also made it possible for things that would never ever surface on a big level to be heard and become big. Because before this sharing culture existed, if if a record was produced in California and you wanted to hear it in Philadelphia, the chain of command that involved money moving a wheel. Otherwise, you'd never hear it. Yeah. And now that's no longer the case, and that's pretty awesome. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, that said, the Internet is also responsible for probably some of the best stuff we've ever seen and absolutely the worst stuff we've ever seen. You know, definitely in music, it's never been better and worse at the same time because of how easily people can get their stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, of course, the, the last part of it is that, you know, all those little diamonds are sort of hiding in a sea, an endless flowing sea of bullshit that just seems to perpetuate. And I hate SoundCloud too, because not only is like, as a guy who mixes records for a living and focuses yeah. on the actual sonic quality of a record, SoundCloud sounds horrible. It is awful. Yeah. So, you know, that's, there's this whole sea of bullshit piling up on, in these corners of the internet. It's sort of a bummer, but eh, that's, that's the, you can't have the gold if you don't have the dirt that the gold's in. No, for sure not. Yeah. It's, and, and it's, it's always been interesting to me to that effect, but you know, I mean, the, the streaming, streaming culture and sharing culture has been really beneficial too, because I mean, for, I can easily say that half of the, the nerdcore rappers specifically that I've discovered is literally through going through the Wikipedia rabbit hole of either Spotify or YouTube or something 
where if it's featuring this rapper, well, then here's a link to their page, who then worked with this person, who then worked with this person, and so on and so forth. Like, it's, there, I, there was a cultural change that came through the the rhetoric of the internet that was really important because, and this was some. This is what you're talking about about five years ago. This is when it happened, where the 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 weight shifted, the tipping point was reached, and it was before that point. People were saying, I can get music for free, so I will, and fuck everyone else, because why not? And then people started saying, well, wait a minute. These artists won't be able to continue doing what they do if they can't make a living doing it. So, okay, let's actually back it up when we say, well, we might not buy the music, but we'll go to the shows. Like, that was BS up until about five years ago. And then the culture shifted, and it started becoming more true. Yeah. No, for sure. And, and like, for me, nothing made, like, as a, an idiot teenager, like, oh, I'm going to download Metallica's new album for free because fuck those guys. They don't need any more money. But, you right. know, as I befriended more indie artists, you know, I, I live in New York, and so there's tons of music everywhere, tons of artists who are selling albums from show to show. It's like, oh, now, now I feel bad about downloading music. Now I'm going to buy every album I want to listen to, or I'm going to listen to it on a service that, paying them back something or I'll find some other way to support them, you know, or I'll, you know, it's, it, it's more about a community now than it ever was before, especially in local scenes, because you have that in, more intimate connection because of Twitter and Facebook. You can actually interact with these audience, uh, uh, artists rather. Well, the other weird consideration too that I never liked when it was, you know, and I mean, it's, it comes from a product of people being young and sort of having a view of the world that isn't necessarily fully three-dimensional, but it's this idea like, okay, Metallica doesn't deserve any more money because they already have money. And the reality is, is that if you are inside the music business, you realize that the capstone on what you can make is low compared yeah. to other industries. And I'm like, I'm friends with Arrested Development, the, the guys in the band, Speech in particular, like we talk mm -hmm. fairly regularly. He's a buddy of mine. This is a guy who sold, I think, three million albums. And that three million albums, he made a lot of money in that time, but people tore him down. There were lawsuits inside of that. He had to make payments from his own pocket to make that money. He does his own. Now he's no longer on a label, so he's doing his own tour support. He's doing his own production expenses. He's, so that all that money he made then is what is now he relies on in order to continue making his own music. So it's not like it's this one dimensional thing where it's like you make your money and then there it is. No, the taxes come out of that. Like seriously, like there's a lot of expenses. And on top of that, you risk so much trying to get to that point that you, I don't think that the payoff is enough. Personally, I don't think Metallica ever made enough money. I don't think that they got what they deserved at any point. Oh, probably. Like I said, as a young idiot, like you don't know any better. But once you, once you can actually see how the world works, and like even every day, it's still an education for me. Like my wife's an actress, and so the the, the amount of money you assume actors who even get guest roles on big shows get, and that it's really not as much as you think, and that you know, no, it's not. TV, TV actors make a a decent living, a good a good upper middle class living. TV actors. Yeah. And and it's like everyone's like, oh, you know, you you know, like the Kickstarter thing where 
people who work in gaming or in movies or wherever else are asking people to directly donate. Like the whole hubbub about Zach Braff when he tried to kickstart or kickstarted his last movie. It's like, oh, you were on Scrubs. You must have a ton of money. It's not necessarily how that works, you know? But right. And the other thing is everywhere. money is also a very complicated thing, too, because, like, I've had points in my life where I've had a lot of money, but I haven't been able to spend anything. Right. And complicated. And we'd like to believe that you know, as musicians and artists, that it's the passion that fuels us, and it is, but it's in the face of so much adversary that if we don't make money at some point along the line, we we don't have the emotional fortitude to stick with it. It just becomes impossible, which is why a lot of people stop. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And it, it, I think that's why, again, like bringing it back to talking about community and stuff, why I love the nerdcore community in particular, because when, when, when people rally together in that community, they're very supportive of each other. And it, it's really incredible, you know, how many artists I've found who's either worked with another artist in the community or knows someone in the community. Or like for me, I've interviewed quite a few members of the community and they always promote and support my stuff that we've done. Like it, it's just, it's great to see that kind of active internet community that really takes care of each other and doesn't just crap on each other all the time. The internet can be a really terrible place, which I'm sure you know, I'm sure, like anything <laughs> else. You know, it, it, anywhere where people can be have anonymity and voice their opinion without having any repercussions, like, they they take to it. And so it's it's nice that nicer corners of the internet still exist where you can kind of support each other and build each other up and work together. I mean, it's not just the internet. It's it's real life as well. Like, sure. the nerd. It's such a small group in so many ways, but it's such a dedicated and supportive group. It's really uh, amazing, and it's it's a privilege, even for for me who I don't I don't do the performance side of things full time. I don't do the artist side of things full time. But it's such a privilege to be accepted by people who are so willing to give of themselves so readily. Like, I don't think that that's anything anybody could take for granted because I don't believe that that exists in most places. No, I agree. Absolutely. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it just breathes this, this ability to work together in community. And I think that's really important, especially in the modern slog of music that's just so vast sometimes. It's It's nice to have something that you can kind of, feel comfortable with and that supports you, you know, it, it's much easier I think, to. I think the music in nerdcore also sort of demands a degree of intelligence to appreciate, which sure. is again, a double-edged sword. I think that's why it's such a small group because there's just not that many smart people in the world. But <laughs> I feel like the majority of the people who are into nerdcore rap are ten, tend to have two things in common. They tend to be a little weird and really smart. And that's a pretty darn good combo from my point of view. So I think I, that's that's what lends itself to this sort of thought process. Yeah, for sure. No, I I agree wholeheartedly meeting both of those criteria. I can speak from experience that it is definitely true. <laughs> um, my last question for you is just as a producer and as someone who works really hard on all sorts of kinds of music, do you have any kind of 
uh, words of advice or wisdom for people trying to break into the industry, either from the production side or from the rapper performance side? That's a very broad question. Sure. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And I've worked with a lot of people who have gone a lot of different ways. So ultimately, what I would say is no matter what you do, you are always looking to create your own platform, which means there's no easy or, or quick way to do it. Looking for somebody else, trying to break in as if the music industry is a building, and inside that building is a bunch of rich people handing out hors d'oeuvres of caviar and, you know, whatever else rich people eat. I don't know what, but that's an illusion. The music industry is a frazzled, frantic, divided, and frayed complex full of people who have no money and tons of debt to people who have so much money, they honestly have no idea what to even do with it and then make terrible choices. So breaking into the music industry, you're already in it. You just don't know it. And you might even be in a better position than some of the people that are quote-unquote established. What really drives everything is fans. So you have to make music with integrity because fans are not going to latch on to something that they don't like. So you have to be genuine in terms of trying to make something that people will enjoy, people will listen to, and it will make them feel something. So that's that's the crux of all of it. And then you have to be very active about getting it out there. So And you can't skimp on either of those things. You need very high quality in terms of the creativity, and you need very high quality in terms of the pursuit of getting people to know it. I think I couldn't have asked for better advice. And they're all that all sounds perfectly succinct, on point, and and fantastic. Um, Storyville, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me while you're driving on 95. I again don't wish the drive on 95 on anybody, so I I appreciate you taking the time. Um, is there anything before before we say goodbye to the listeners that you want to promote? Anything coming up specifically? Yeah, I would like to, actually, because maybe some of your your listeners don't know the other side of Storyville, which is Matthew Weiss, Weiss Sound. I am a content provider for a pro audio blog called The Pro Audio Files, and it has a lot of great content on it. It has Mostly it's free. There are things uh, for purchase as well, but most of it's free articles, videos on how to produce music, how to guide your career in music. And it's something that I do because it will save people what I did in 10 years. Hopefully other people can do in five, basically. Nice. <laughs> uh, so check that out. It's the proaudiofiles.com. Proaudiofiles.com. I'll try and remember when this goes up in two weeks to put that in, put a link in the, in the article itself. Um, the I'll shoot you the... I'll shoot you the link on Facebook. It's very important to put the the in front of it. Perfect. Yes. If you send me the link, I can't possibly screw it up. So I like to think. Um, I really do appreciate you taking the time, man. Again, I'm a huge fan of your work, both production and both rapping. Um, I look forward to the possibility of hearing some new Storyville songs as well as checking out the blog. Um, and, and thank you again for taking the time. If you ever find yourself in New York City performing or otherwise, please let me know. Awesome. Thank you for uh, for having me on. My pleasure, dude. Take care of yourself. All right. Take care. Bye. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. 
If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good.